I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You are listening to Alone, a love story. And I'm Michelle Parisi. Chapter 13. The Saddest Optimist. Training. The personal trainer looks at me with concern. It's 7 a.m., we're in a park, and she's about to put me through a full hour of serious workout. It's a Tuesday. The personal trainer is 26. Beautiful. I'm 37. Still drunk. God, I remember once upon a time, I was 26 with my shit together, looking at drunk people with concern. But hey, I'm here, aren't I? I didn't cancel on her. I never cancel. I always show up, no matter what state I'm in. Two, sometimes three times a week, I've committed myself to being pushed hard by her. Some guy left my bed at 3 a.m., and here I am at 7, doing an unbelievable amount of lunges, squats, sprints. Jesus Christ. It's early September, 2012. Back when the bomb dropped, I gave myself a six-month time limit on feeling sorry for myself. So here we are, six months later, and I have to get on with it. The beautiful personal trainer is the first step. She says her priority is to get me to stop drinking, then stop smoking. She wants me to eat again, properly, but I'm still not that into eating. My whiskey and cigarettes diet has given me a body like I've never had, but I want to be strong again. I need my body to get stronger so that I will get stronger. From this point on, I push myself. I get lines in my abs I didn't even know you could get. When I run, I'm faster, less winded, thanks to beautiful trainers' crazy regime. Everything tightens up. I buy clothes in sizes I've never bought clothes in before. And then I buy more. So many clothes. I can't stop because for the first time in my life, I actually fit into everything I try on. I get stronger and stronger. I can lift my 50-pound daughter now without any trouble. I can carry her sleeping body plus a thousand bags all the way from the car to the elevator then down the long hallway to my apartment and I don't huff and puff or even crack a sweat. I feel awesome. Beautiful Trainer is changing my life. Sure, I am. But really, it's her. She says, 10 more, and I do 10 more. She says, that's okay. When I burst into tears, sobbing through abdominal crunches, crying through squats saying over and over to her, I don't know how I got here. Why am I here? I don't know why my husband did this to me. Why did he do this to me? Something about pushing myself physically is pushing the words out of me, pushing the confusion right out with the sweat. 
beautiful trainer nods her head. Her eyes fill with tears. You are amazing and strong. He did it because he's a jerk. And you're going to get better. Now do that entire set from the top. And I do. I do every set she tells me to twice. By the end of the first month of training, I've cut down on the smoking and I ease up on the booze a lot. It isn't daily anymore and it will never be again. Thank God. I put some weight back on because without all the drinking, I'm hungry for food again. And anyway, the weight is good because my muscles are strong. I actually stand in front of the mirror now and see something I like. Everything is leaner and tighter, but still super curvy, still lots of meat. It looks great. For the first time in my life, I love everything about my own body. It's an incredible achievement to stand there in your skivvies and say, damn, I look good. All these years later, I still do this. No matter how much weight I've gained or roles I have, I continue to look at myself in the mirror and say, damn, I look good, even if I'm not totally feeling it. It's one of the best things I've learned to do, the best gift I've given myself. Because I do look good. And so do you, goddammit. Past in present. In this first year since the bomb, the ex-husband and I have settled into our complicated relationship. He comes over and fixes things for me, brings his drill and hangs pictures and wall lamps. He listens to the water heater and tells me why it's making that clicking sound. When I go to his place, I straighten up the clothes in Bertie's closet. I counsel him on the finer points of dressing a five-year-old girl. I secretly marvel at how put together his place is, how exactly him it seems, even though it has all my furniture in it. I oddly feel good he has his own space, his own sense of style in it. I don't tell him this. One day when I'm there, I go into Bertie's room and notice that he's hung two big frames over her bed. One is a collage of a bunch of different photos of him that I took before she was born. The other is a collage of photos of me from the same time period. The two of us in our 20s, all smiles and swagger. As soon as I see them, I freeze. I can hear Birdie. Mom? Mom? But it's like she's at the end of a tunnel. My head is swimming. You were so young once. In a sad trance, I lie down on her bed, but can't stop looking at the photos. Bertie runs to get her dad, and he rushes in and immediately grabs my wrist, which is so him, you know, to check my fucking pulse as if I've had a heart attack instead of knowing those happy photos of us would tailspin me. When he realizes what's wrong, he crawls onto her bed beside me. He curls his arms around me, his right leg folded over mine in the exact way we slept each night for the previous 12 years. Bertie jumps in the bed with us and looks so happy she could burst. His hand on my face, gently. He says, 
over and over. Should I take them down? Of course not, I say, once I return to Earth. I tickle Birdie and kiss her goodbye. Then I walk across the street. When she's here. When Birdie's gone, I feel emptied out. There's no other way to say it. It's like I have a phantom limb. I can feel her here with me, even though she isn't. She's with her father. She's fine. She's happy and healthy and getting everything she needs from him. During the 50% of the time, she's there and not here. But it eats away at me. This part of the loneliness, this walking past her bedroom with its purple walls and stuffed animals, here, right here in my apartment, but empty. The place where a child once was and now isn't, but will come back to. So many goodbyes, so many reunions. It takes adjusting to, mostly for me. Bertie's unfazed by her two homes. She acts like it's all completely normal. We've been parenting her together every step of the way since we separated, and it's paying off. Just look at her. She's wearing her Supergirl costume. Again. It's nowhere near Halloween. I don't care. I let her wear it whenever she wants. What's the difference? Right now, she's putting together an Ikea stool and has all the parts laid out perfectly on the apartment floor. She studies the manual thoughtfully, as any Supergirl would. I take her orders. Hold the legs. Use the screwdriver to put in the long, funny, screwy things. Her orders are all shouts. She is half Italian. Together, we make a pretty good little stool. It's still in her room, all these years later. She's starting senior kindergarten at a new school in our new neighborhood in our new life. She's got a brand new pair of white sneakers. So plain, she says. So I hand her a black Sharpie. Go for it. Her blue eyes wide with excitement. She tricks out those sneakers like she's a five-year-old graffiti artist. They look so cool. Now she's six. She wants to get her ears pierced. Her ear. Just one. That's my style, she says. So I hold her little hand as she gets it done. She squeezes me hard and says, Holy, that hurt! But she doesn't cry out. Or cry. We walk back home, swinging our arms, trying to guess how many windows are in each tall building. Birdie, at every age, slips tiny little misspelled notes into my purse, and sometimes my lunch bag for me to find later when I'm at work. Oh, hi, Mom. Have a great day, says one. Oh, hey, Mom. Do you know you are totally the best? <laughs> I keep them all. 
in my purse. Anytime I feel like a sad, lonely loser, I pull them out to remind myself I'm the luckiest loser that ever lived. I may have loved and lost, but at least I loved and lost. And this unbelievable little human is the result. Here she is, age seven. We're walking in a big downtown park, and we see a hip-hop artist I know. He's making a music video in the park, and Bertie and I get pulled into the fun, dancing and lip-syncing along to the track in a little ramshackle booth. Afterward, I say, Wasn't that the coolest? We're going to be in a video. I really liked your friend's dog, she says. And the song, I guess. She takes off to play with the other kids in the playground. In these moments with Bertie, I'm whole again. I'm relaxed. I'm relaxing into being a part-time parent to her, not having her dad to defer to or negotiate with about what happens in the small moments. We're just two people here, me and Bertie. We create our own space, develop our own rhythm. I try not to worry about how other parents parent. I run on instinct. I don't put her in any classes or extracurricular activities. When she's with me, the city is one big adventure. Bertie's with me every other weekend, and that's when we make art together. Collages, paintings, drawings, sewing projects, elaborately decorated cupcakes. I refuse to make plans for us on Saturday mornings. I want us to have this one time every two weeks where we don't have to rush off anywhere. The not rushing is what brings me closest to her. Carving that space out for us is the best decision I've ever made as a parent. Every Saturday morning is a masterclass in just chilling out, staying in our pajamas, making things, making a mess of the place. Who cares? I don't look at my phone. I don't answer calls. We become remarkably in tune, doing our own things but still interacting. Mother and daughter in parallel play. It's wonderful. When it's time for Bertie to go, I say, don't forget about the invisible thread. And she says, I won't, Mom. The invisible thread that's always connecting us, whether we're physically together or not. When she's here, we're both learning and growing. Everything's new for us both. So we design our life together over the years. We redraw the lines of parent and child, woman and girl, human and human. We make it all up as we go along, in pajamas and taking no calls. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Rings.
I only ever think about them when I'm on public transit. Engagement rings. On a crowded streetcar, they're everywhere. On fingers gripped around poles, tapping on cell phones or curled around a book, they're diamonds twinkling and taunting me. Oh, there's another one. Look as she absentmindedly twirls it with her left thumb, the way I once did with my own. This girl who looks too young, all edges, all high-pitched complaints as she shout-talks to her friend. For months after the bomb, I would twirl the space where my engagement ring once was. Minutes passing before I'd realized it wasn't even there anymore. It would never be there again. Now it sits in a little box beside my wedding band, both nestled together on soft black cloth, closed away forever. I never wanted a ring, you know. I never imagined owning a diamond or wearing one, never looked at them longingly in a shop window. It just wasn't my thing. But once he gave it to me, that beautiful ring he designed himself, I never took it off. Never. Not till the bitter end. Not even during my pregnancy, until I was so swollen I had no choice but to remove them. The husband used butter to try and get those darn rings off my enormous finger. We killed ourselves laughing there in the kitchen of the house we'd just bought. And teasingly I said, couldn't you just have used hand cream like a normal person? Why butter? But I love butter, he said, and we laughed some more. Once the butter did its magic, I immediately put the wedding rings on a chain I wore around my neck day and night. The platinum and the white gold pressed to my heart as I slept, swishing across my skin while I was at work, something for me to fiddle with while riding the bus home. I didn't take that chain off until after Bertie was born and my fingers went back to normal size. And then I put those rings right back on. I think about his ring, his wedding band, which he also never took off. I think about the day I bought it for him, how I had it inscribed with my nickname for him, my rogue. I know. I think about him touching her face, her body, while wearing the ring I put on his finger on our wedding day. I think of the cool platinum running along her skin, through her hair touching her in places and in ways I don't want to think about. Places and ways I used to need booze and sleeping pills to eradicate. Rings. They're just objects, I know. They're just symbols. We just give them to one another in front of all our friends and family and in front of God, that's all. We say eternal, and everyone reaches for the Kleenex. But what we mean is, or for as long as I can stand it. He had my wedding band inscribed with Mi Vision. That was his nickname for me. The lilt of his Newfoundland brogue, the dialect that replaces my with me. Sometimes he'd call me his demon. Vision, demon, vision, demon. It's hard to say what he meant by these things. I never really knew. Anyway, he'd long stopped calling me either of those names by the end. The end I didn't know was the end. 
And yes, I called him my rogue. A strange nickname, I know, and in hindsight, it's almost like calling him heartbreaker or soul destroyer or goddamn liar cheater. That would be even weirder to put on a wedding ring. But to me, my rogue was a rascal with that devilish smirk, that dark stare. He was Han Solo to my Princess Leia. Fun fact, they were the two figures on top of our wedding cake in place of the traditional bride and groom. So much bad luck. You know, my wedding band was also my mother's wedding band. I mean, who thinks it's a good idea to use the wedding band of her divorced parents? But I thought our love transcended superstition. The ring was from the 60s, just like my vintage wedding dress, and I loved it. The design was so different from anything I've ever seen. So I didn't think it was bad luck. I didn't think an object could hold such currency. Now, I put more weight in objects. Now, I'm no dummy. A pretty sad girl. I'm getting an MRI. It's midnight in the basement of this old hospital, the one I was born in 37 years ago. The one I'm in now, alone, about to slide into a tube while magnets crash around me like a symphony of instruments all made of garbage cans. There's nothing more cinematic than this moment, maybe. Me walking down dimly lit hallways into a basement reception area at midnight to get my brain scanned for a stupid disease no one seems to know very much about. I'm filling out the form I have to fill out every single time I get an MRI, once a year. No metal fillings in my teeth. Check. No shrapnel in my body. Check. Shrapnel. (laughs) This makes me laugh every time, as though since last summer I've been out to the front lines or something. The admitting nurse is staring at me. She's old, like, too old to be working this late, if you ask me. I look up from the form, and she says in this gorgeous old lady voice, You are so pretty, I can't help but notice but I have never seen such a pretty girl look so sad inside of herself. She's looking at me expectantly, so I try to respond, but I've got nothing for you, lady. I can't think of anything to say. I'm a pretty girl. A sad girl. A pretty sad girl. Yeah, I know. I'm 37, and I'm alone is what I finally say. She pats my hand and it's all I can do not to fall into the deepest hole. In a small room, I take off all my clothes and stuff them into a locker. I put on two paper hospital gowns, one forward and one backward, as instructed. I remove all five of my earrings and the rings on my right hand. The locker needs a four-digit passcode, so I punch in my childhood address. Freezing, I sit on a plastic chair in an empty waiting room, alone. 
TV news on top volume for no one. My socks on the cold floor. Soon enough, I'm sliding into the MRI machine. Here I am, lying on this table. It's so snug when they slide you in. Dark. And there's this metal thing holding my head in place. The technician tells me not to move. You aren't allowed to move, or else the pictures they're taking of your brain will be ruined, and then you'll have to start all over again. I don't want to start all over again. It's snug in here, remember? And I'm going to be in here for the next 40 minutes. And then it begins. Holy Lord, it's loud. But quickly, it gets really rhythmic sounding to me. Really musical. I hear music. Each time the machine is taking a picture of my brain, it sounds like a different song to me. The songs are actually called pulse sequences, and they're as deliberately composed as any sequence in a piece of music. What? I've done my research, okay? It's cool, this magnetic techno I hear. And after a while, I forget about the lonely, empty hospital and how pathetic and cold I feel lying in this tube. My breathing starts to lock in time with the high-pitched whirring and clanging of the magnet's coils. Rhythm is all about movement, but here, inside this giant machine, it's like I'm experiencing rhythm in the very absence of movement. Lying very still in a cold room in the basement of a hospital, tuning into these pulse sequences like songs on a radio. Songs that create images of my brain and make me forget about my heart for a little while. When it's over, as the two MRI technicians are helping me out of the machine, I crack a joke about how they have magnetic personalities. In the change room, there's a woman putting on her paper gown. I tell her she can leave her socks on and her underwear, even though they told her to take everything off. Oh, thank you, she says, and then... I've never done this before. So I give her a spare pair of brand new earplugs, as well as my old sleep mask. Trust me, it's super creepy to watch yourself slide into a tube. You have to have your eyes covered. And like with that thing holding your head down, it's already a little too clockwork orange, you know what I'm saying? We laugh. And I see her whole paper gowned body relax. When I leave, I smile at the sweet old nurse, still sitting at the desk. This is just me, I guess. The saddest optimist. A pretty, sad girl who never gives up hope. You're listening to Alone, a love story, written by me, Michelle Parisi. It's a CBC original podcast. The story editor is Veronica Simmons. Alone is mixed and produced by me and Veronica in our hometown of Toronto. 
I've got a lot more to share with you at cbc.ca slash alone. The stories behind the story I'm telling, photos, and a lot about music. Stick with me. I want to tell you about the scene of the crime. Hey, there's another CBC original podcast I want to tell you about. Other people's problems. Normally, therapy sessions are totally confidential, but this podcast opens the doors. This is what people really sound like when they talk about traumatic births, turbulent marriages, eating disorders, and tough childhoods. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to alone. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.